science fiction is lauded as the most inclusive genre, because a lot of sci-fi universes seem to exist in a post-sexism, post-homophobia universe. Women are badasses, characters have same-sex partners, and no one bats an eye. But is it really a post-prejudice society in this science fiction media? This is Fact and Science Fiction. I'm your host, Carly, and this episode, I'm discussing gender and sexuality. This episode, I decided to do something a little bit different. I was feeling kind of nervous diving into this topic because it's something I've been thinking about for a really long time, and um, I'm pretty biased, and uh, I have my own strong opinions. But and even though I did some research on my, you know, my thoughts about this topic, I'm not. I don't want to seem like whatever I say is the be all end all of gender and sexual orientation representation in science fiction. So I asked um, girlfriend of the pod, Jess, to be on this episode and to just uh, share her thoughts as a person who also is a big fan of science fiction and is also queer. Um, And then we can just talk about it too. So um, let's just get started. All right. (laughs) In this discussion, I've combined the um, discussion of gender and sexuality into one topic, because even though they're different, in media we often make assumptions about one given the other. We assume someone's sexual orientation because of how they code more masculine or feminine. Um, prejudice against one type can often be related to prejudice against the other. So it's it's not the same thing, but it is related. Also, I just feel like what we know about how gender is represented in science fiction can apply to how sexuality is represented and vice versa. So the definition of gender is probably just as complicated as the definition of science fiction. While I definitely make a distinction between gender and biological sex, I do recognize that both gender and biological sex exist on a spectrum. So usually people like to use biological sex to determine how masculine or feminine a person should be, uh, using chromosomes, reproductive organs, etc., as if those are divided into two sides. But they're actually as variable as a lot of traits humans have. And sexual orientation doesn't exist in categories either. We like to label sexual orientation um, and try to make distinctions between those, but... um, like human sexuality exists on a spectrum too. And we kind of put categories on it because we as a society has kind of placed more value on one sexual orientation rather than the others. And that's where prejudice and bias come in. In Orphan Black, the character Delphine realizes that she's attracted to a woman for the first time in her life, and she says, I know that sexuality is a spectrum, but you know social biases, they codified attraction, uh, contrary to the biological facts. It comes up just like any other gene expression. It's somewhat based on environment. Um, So I may have a genetic predisposition for emphysema, but it's not going to show up if they never smoke. Someone genetically may have a predisposition to a different sexuality, but if it's 
completely unacceptable and that environment are dangerous, they may never realize it. Right. Society kind of affects how we interpret our thoughts and behaviors and um, kind of known language can play a big role in that, too. Yeah. Uh, and gender is kind of the same. We don't know what being masculine or feminine really means. We just, as a society, has decided that some traits or some performance of behavior is either masculine or feminine. I read a book called Decoding Gender in Science Fiction, and the author wrote uh, that gender is a cultural code to represent what we socially think of femininity, masculinity, and androgyny, or the space between. Society mostly defines gender. It is not merely biologically determined. So, Jess, you had a really good thought about why science fiction is kind of perceived as the most diverse genre. Can you go into that a little bit? Well, it has the potential to be. Unlike historical fiction, it doesn't have to meet an already defined world or modern fiction where it has to be realistic within the realms of what we already know. It can try anything, but it's more of an idea that it could be this rather than in practicality because the people have the opportunity to write historically have all been of a similar background. And to be fair, people are told to write what you know. And if all they know is one point of view, what they come up with will only speculate from one race, one gender, one sexuality. And I do want to mention um, that... uh along with gender and sexuality, that science fiction can also be kind of progressive as far as representation goes about race, too. They can have characters that aren't tokenized. Um, I want to dedicate an entire episode to race and science and science fiction, but I just wanted to mention sci-fi's reputation for diversity and inclusion. But like just said, uh, science fiction is still kind of created from a certain point of view, um, like a lot of science fiction is still created under the assumption that there are just two sexes, female and male, and polar opposites of masculinity and femininity. You kind of just have to support diverse authorship to have diverse fiction. Right, exactly. Um, because creators aren't immune to implicit prejudices just because they create, you know, sci-fi that exists on different worlds or in the far future. For example, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but a large percentage of women and queer characters on television, and particularly science fiction TV, are killed to make a plot. <laughs> yeah, to make a plot for the male characters. Bury your gaze. Yeah, exactly. Um, and often these sci-fi worlds have the exact same problems as today's world but it kind of absolves us of our prejudices today. Like we may not discriminate against LGBT people in the future or this other world, but that's because we hate this alien race or sentient robots or whoever this kind of enemy is like the other. Can't imagine a world without the prejudice, but let's just transpose it onto another target. <laughs> right, exactly. It's kind of like, you know, LGBT people or minorities can see themselves in the characters and, you know, kind of 
aspire to this world in which they could just be people without the kind of hardship that they deal with today. But then there's there's still this kind of other minority that's discriminated against. So, like, we haven't moved on from tribalism or xenophobia. Um, we've just kind of shifted it to um, something a little more palatable, I guess. It's like something that won't offend any of the present day readership because no one's actually met this alien that everyone's written into hate. <laughs> right. It's like now the like outsiders get to be the in-group hating somebody else. Look how progressive we are. We all hate them together. Right. So um, I want to back up a bit and start talking about gender stereotypes in science fiction. So uh, we recently finished season one of Westworld. And it was amazing. It was awesome. And I'm going to talk more about its um, use of artificial intelligence in a in the next episode. <laughs> and the ethics surrounding it, because oh my god. Right, yeah. Um, but I first wanted to talk about how it represented women. So if you don't know, Westworld is a uh, fictional theme park in the future in which it recreates the fantasy of the Wild West except that all of the characters in this Wild West theme park are androids. And so the very rich visitors um, can be cowboys and cowgirls. Um, but the horrifying part is that they can also be like rapists and murderers and no one bats an eye because they can do whatever they want to the androids. At the very beginning, it's kind of heavy handed when people are going to the park. You can choose a white hat or a black hat. It, they make it very explicit that you can be as evil and horrible without any repercussion as you want. Right, exactly. And some people are just monsters. Mm -hmm. And this is, like, really horrible to watch sometimes. The entire idea is that you can be whoever you want to be in Westworld to the detriment of basically every android in the park. Um, even the tourists who are friendly to the androids know explicitly the horrors that they faced um, there's a power structure that almost definitely harms the female androids in a different way than the male androids. Um, they are, you know, treated as objects, like sexual objects, you know, the brunt of all the violent impulses. Even the language used around them, they're meant to not recognize and dismiss dehumanizing language directed at the androids. They'll just kind of pass by without hearing it. And so you'll see everyone talking around them. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they have all these human thoughts and feelings that are not recognized or accepted, just culturally treated as less than. Right. But like the whole fantasy of the Wild West, like why the tourists want to go there is because it's supposed to be like, they can be whatever they want. They can do whatever they want. Like, you know, in the old wild west like women couldn't own property they couldn't run with bandits or whatever and they can but it's like to the entire they subject actually sometimes did oh, i yeah, mean that's true montana almost didn't come into the union when they weren't going to be able to allow women to vote because they did women vote. had already voted in the state huh. and they're like we're not going to take a step backwards like when you have such sparse population and you end up with more equality because everyone has to contribute. I mean, you'd find places where, I mean, there's definitely more violence and dehumanization, but it's not quite the popular culture idea of 
what it was in practicality. When you've got a population of 30, you're not going to say, well, let's just go have one half of it go stay at home and not do anything other than twiddle their thumbs. Everyone has to contribute for survival, and it was respected. Hmm. Yeah, that's not the story that you see about Told. the wild And I mean, yeah. it's not certainly not universal, uh-huh. and it certainly wasn't equality, but it's not quite the helpless damsel in distress. Mm-hmm. And it was also more opportunity than just female brothel owners. Right. Yeah, that's not that much. that wasn't an important and viable way for someone to gain political ground in a boomtown. Mm-hmm. Which the entire, like, idea, like, cultural idea of the Wild West is, like, pretty much right. based on fiction. <laughs> Thanks, John Wayne. Right, exactly. Somehow we had this entire half of the country comprised only of men, and they were all somehow happy, but none of them were gay. <laughs> So, um, back to Westworld. <laughs> right. Sorry. <laughs> Tangent. That's okay. Um, so, the show definitely highlights the, you know, the violence that these women androids face. Um, but instead of, like, what I liked about Westworld was that instead of kind of relying on the violence as being, like, titillating or ex- exploitive, um, the show, like, typically, like, pulls back and shows only the suggestion of violence or they, like, contin- they refer to it as a trauma that these women, you know, have to overcome, um, but it happens behind closed doors, off frame, um, and the trauma that they're dealing with is never, like, glossed over. Um, there are some shows that make the violence... Titillating. Titillating, yeah. I don't know if they mean it to, but maybe they do. I don't know. Well, there's some shows where the only time women's sex or nudity is shown is in a degrading violent manners and if titillation's what they're going for and that's the only opportunity they allow for it mm. then yeah that's yep. the conscious choice yeah looking at you game of thrones so i don't want to spoil anything but if you do start watching it keep your eye on the female characters because they might start out as like the damsel in distress, but and they definitely don't have any agency to start out with. But it's designed to call out that that's terrible, rather mm-hmm. than that this is just something to be accepted. It never really lets you slide past that this isn't sexy, this isn't comfortable, this isn't fun. Mm-hmm. It's the violence against women is and the lack of agency of them and the other androids are supposed to show up as something that you regret and I don't know. I'm ready for the android uprising. Right, me too. I was ready for it like the first episode. I was like, <laughs> set them free. And like and we'll talk about a couple examples later, but I feel like sci-fi has given a lot of like iconic female roles. Um, that you just don't really see in um, other genres. I feel like action movies and sci-fi movies are kind of where female action heroes shine. Good old Ripley. Right. Ellen Ripley in the Alien series. There's Sarah Connor. Um, Everyone in video games from Samus Tech 
taking off her helmet back in 16-bit through Female Shepherd. I I don't know anything about video games, so I, I know Female Shepherd is. <laughs> <laughs> and then I also want to talk about, like, the representations of, of um, female scientists in film and TV, uh, because... Like I mentioned in the first episode, I've studied what people like to see to increase interest in science. And a lot of research has um, suggested that, um, like, young girls who see female scientists, you know, tells them that it's okay, that they can foster that interest and, and aspire to be scientists. Um, the two women scientists that come to mind um, in movies, I know um, Jodie Foster in Contact was pretty mm-hmm. cool. And recently, um, we watched the movie Arrival, and I really loved Amy, Amy Adams. Adams. was so great. Yeah, she plays, she plays a linguist uh, who's responsible for communicating with, like, their first contact with um, aliens. And these films were almost 30 years apart, and yet I think their representations of female scientists are very similar. Have you seen Contact? It's been years. Uh, probably not since high school. Yeah, I watched it in the last few years. Um, so their specialized fields make them very valuable to making contact with aliens. Um, they are often second-guessed by their male associates and authority figures. The military. The military, Yep. Um, But they end up being right in the end, by the way. (laughs) And if you follow the pod on social media, you've probably saw me gabbing about Arrival. I think it's such a great movie. Um, If you want to cry forever. Yeah. Oh, my God. I cried so much. Um, And I love Amy Adams' character. Um, She's no action star, um, but she's not a stereotypical scientist either. Um, so, like I said, she's a linguist, so usually scientists in um, movies and TV, they're either engineers or... Some vague biology or chemistry major that they never get into detail, but right. you see lots of... Microscopes and beakers. flasks. Right, and- exactly. <laughs> um, and secondly, her character is as closely wrapped up... With- um, with her capacity as a mother, as a cooperative researcher and collaborator, like she's very passionate of, about working out this problem with other people, like just opening dialogues both with her team and with the aliens. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of books that I thought had really interesting um, spins on. Um, gender representation, but also kind of challenging our, like, how we stereotypically perceive gender. So, um, the book Ancillary Justice, um, the convention is that everyone is called she, regardless Mm -hmm. of, like, their actual gender. Like, you'll be reading along and see several characters referred to as she, and it just kind of trips you up. Kind of like that a riddle, like a man and his son are in a car accident and the father is killed instantly. The son is rushed to the hospital and the surgeon comes in as the operating room and says, I can't operate on this boy. He's my son. How is this possible? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> right. The surgeon is his a mom. Um, but this often trips people up because we assume doctors are men. Maybe not you, but 
a lot of people. Actually, even some doctors. So that's kind of like an ancillary justice. You'll see soldiers referred to as she, chefs referred to as she, doctors referred to as she, etc., etc. And then several sentences down, the author will reveal that only some of them are actually are male. Um, if she reveals it at all. Like, sometimes she just doesn't. <laughs> and then, um, conversely, Ursula... K. Le Guin's book, The Left Hand of Darkness, has been kind of on so many, like, best science fiction novels of all time, like, must-reads. Um, I, I don't think I finished it. I started it. But the reason why it was recommended is because it imagines a world in which an alien race freely changes sex throughout their lives. Um, a person can be both male and female. All aliens can bear or father children. Um, and the people fall in love with other people regardless of what gender they are. While it was pretty revolutionary for its time, and it's, like I said, it's still revered today, I was kind of disappointed to find that while it's true that every member of this alien race is not stuck in one gender, it still has a pretty rigid view of what masculine traits are and what feminine traits are. Like, there's this part where, so the main character is actually someone from Earth, and he goes to this alien planet and tries to, um get some resource, I think, with from this alien race. And um, and he's, like, talking to this prince, and he's, like, he says something about how the when they're women, they can be really manipulative and deceiving, and when they're men, they can be bullish. And, um, and then I read, I read about it that, um, like, characters of authority are referred to as he- yeah. And um, you never really see them care for their children, be particularly nurturing, or other stereotypically feminine traits. So I want to talk a little bit about, um, I kind of mentioned it last episode when I talked about science and research that's biased. And um, this is especially true about gender, like all drug treatment. Human trials use male mice. And um, a lot of social science research uses majority female populations because mm. um, a lot of research is done on college campuses. And nowadays, like the populations skew toward more, more women. And yet we're supposed to, you know, generalize the results that they find. Um, but science still wants to study differences in gender in almost every study, um, especially in the social sciences. We are pretty much asked to identify our sex or gender in almost every survey, subscription, or even mailing list. This is because our gender and how we've experienced this world as our identified sex has impacted the way we think and act. Like, you know, society tells us what's masculine and feminine, and we internalize those. And it's not so much our biology as just the way society, again, treats people differently. So this information is used to see how gender is correlated to some sort of thoughts or behavior. So not all science can imply that our gender causes us to behave or think some way, but often that there is a correlation. And social scientists like sociologists and anthropologists particularly like to study how our ideas of gender have changed. Um, so here's a quote from uh, Brian Atterbury, who wrote the Decoding Gender in Science Fiction. 
He said, science fiction is not so different from the storytelling engaged by sociobiologists and anthropologists, save for the fact that it tends to focus not on origins, but on ends, not on where we came from, but where we are going. And because where we are going depends partly on where we are willing and able to imagine ourselves going, science fiction can offer important insights into the limits of the imaginable and the ways those limits are changing, from housewives in space to gender-free utopias and beyond. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Again, showing everything it can be. So uh, Brian Atterbury spent a good deal of time in his book talking about the Superman stories. Um, So we see this a lot in science fiction, Um, not specifically the character of Superman, but the trend of science fiction to depict men who were above mere humans. So they had special abilities, they were often stronger and tougher, and they were often in competition with regular humans. They were uh, depicted as the next step in evolution. Do you think, can you think of any examples? Um... Every video game ever, <laughs> every anime ever, um, basically every sci-fi book written from the 50s to the 70s, mm-hmm. almost every fantasy book still. <laughs> yep. Atterbury says that these stories often had very deterministic views of gender. These supermen had to be violent in order to survive. And um, he related this theme... F- to Darwinism, like the survival of the fittest, and that's kind of where this idea that they were in the next step of evolution. What? What are you saying? Because it feels like social Darwinism rather than natural selection, or... <laughs> it's not evolution. No, it's not. That's, that's not how any of this works. <laughs> um, so Darwin's work theorized that men's primary drive was to fight other males for sexual reproduction, um, this probably sounds familiar. And also not what Darwin was about. No. Mm-mm. No. I have a real problem with evolutionary psychology to begin with. Yeah. Um, they're always saying, like, we have a biological drive to produce children and, you know, maintain the... Well, it doesn't even play out just in biology, I'm forgetting what fish it is, but you'll have this one that's all strong and virile, making up these nice pretty nests to tempt the ladies in. The ladies will look at this stunning specimen of a male, they'll lay their eggs, and this fast little guy will swim right in and ejaculate all over it, fertilize the eggs, and then it's his traits that are passed on. Like, the biggest and strongest is not is often not the winner in biology. Mm -hmm. It's the one that is most adapted to its situation. They don't even grasp Darwin's theory, let alone extrapolate it well into other sciences. It's... And I just... And I don't get, like, why they apply it to humans. like Or on a micro level. Mm -hmm. Uh, No. A lot of problems. Yeah. A professor, like, explained, so evolutionary psychology... It's a perspective in psychology when they see behaviors and they're like, well, I can see how this would be valuable in, you know, ancient times when we had to do all this stuff just to survive. So we'd be very competitive. Men would be very competitive. Women would do these behaviors to, you know, get a male. But 
Like the Instead even we evolved into having a society and a cooperative society at that. Exactly. So antisocial behavior diminishes your chances of passing on your traits because you're going to get driven out. And it, well, okay, so first of all, no, it's okay. So first of all, just the idea like that you see a behavior and then just apply your theory to it is the opposite of the scientific (laughs) method. Like if you really enjoy being right and you don't handle being wrong very much, (laughs) then science is not the field for you (laughs) because the vast majority of it is about failing over and over and over until you break through and get something right. Right. Um, and then, like like you kind of mentioned a few minutes ago, that there's more to growing a race of humans than just men populating, like men and women having sex. Like it's there's yeah. a whole there's a lot more. And then it just you know that kind of view just totally overlooks like women's role in value yeah and they like women pass on their genes too like they never talk about that they're always like just want to skip all over the mitochondrial dna here (laughs) Uh. so um so women's roles in this idea of darwinism that we've totally debunked live on this podcast (laughs) Um, oh yeah sure (laughs) so women's role were to to deal like their you know traits that were favored by the universe by adaptation were to deal with these violent men um, and the ones who could be demure publicly and, you know, were, would be, would win the best, best men. In this dude's world that he created in his grandmother's basement. (laughs) Right. So anyway, (laughs) this evolutionary theory has been challenged by more research into how humans have actually evolved it often with communication um, cooperation, sharing, also the invention of technology. Like, <laughs> helps. Yeah, it does. It helps a lot. <laughs> In the form of tools and weapons. So all of these medicine. things. Medicine. Yeah, all of these things men and women participated in equally. So, um, and yet this idea lives on, especially in fiction. Sci-fi creators invent these ubermen or supermen who are tough, violent, have some super ability, and are highly intelligent. Um, even if they are cast as the villain, we can't help but admire their powers. Mm. At least that was in science. He's this author talked primarily about science fiction in the 40s through the 70s, like you talked about, like you mentioned. Um, but when these abilities are given to female characters, they somehow aren't exactly as strong or as smart and have to be saved in some way. I don't think I've ever read one where it had the female version of an Ubermensch. It was like if they were like somehow if they were an alien race, they would somehow sometimes be like a side character that was a female, um, but she was useless even though she was from this alien race uh, that had these massive godlike powers. But she's still a damsel in distress. Yep, awesome. So uh, he uh, Atterbury says that the idea of Superman was to exaggerate the evolutionary ideal of masculinity. Make him stronger, tougher, more violent, and now he is a Superman. But if you exaggerate the evolutionary ideal of feminine traits, quiet, demure, giving, cooperative, more concerned with others than with the self, exaggerate those and they basically write themselves out of the story. They could not, like, sci-fi writers just could not conceive of a world in which their personal fetish isn't the actual desirable evolutionary traits of a female. Yeah. 
just like <laughs> someone be, like they couldn't conceive of just a woman being like incredibly capable um just in different ways and this is all based on you know this really right. and from the terrible idea and right least favorite trope so instead it seems like science fiction just science fiction creators just give more masculine or you know stereotypically masculine traits to women so they make them strong tough more violent so that is, in a nutshell, gender representation in science fiction. At least up until the 80s. <laughs> right. The pulp science fiction. And so like, I think we do have much better now. We have more diverse authors. Yeah, that's true. I mean, still ways to go, but mm -hmm. like we're, we're getting better. Yeah. Well, we just, I mean, we just went to the bookstore yesterday and we walked through the science fiction and it was basically all the books that we pointed out, you know, had male main characters. But also, my niece had us sent a picture of herself dressed as Leia. Right. And, like, her character has just gotten more and more awesome, like, as time goes on. Like, she's given more authority, and yet she's... More capability. It's her... She's a politician who's a hero mm -hmm. a general who gets by with being able to lead people and get disparate groups to cooperate so good now i'm just i'm just, just reminiscing just zoning just out of leia yeah just <laughs> no, that's just reflecting on how awesome she is we should all take a moment to reflect on leia and alderaan yep general leia organa Okay, um, so now I want to have, like, a, a, a quick breakdown of queer theory. <clears throat> so how is, how do we define sexuality and sexual orientation? Why do we have these labels, LGBT, queer, lesbian, gay, uh, transgender, bisexual, all of those, <clears throat> and more? So I wrote a 25-page paper on queer theory in grad school, and... Uh, in my film class, and I still feel like I've barely scratched the surface. And I've never written a paper on it, so <laughs> I'm even less of an authority. <laughs> but I can definitely go over what I've gathered um, about queer theory and media in particular. So, in general, what we define as homosexuality is the attraction to and desire for a relationship with a person of the same sex. Um, but over the years, we found that there are differences between romantic attraction, sexual attraction, and how that's even separate from desiring a relationship with somebody. Like, there are people who, you know, how do you define someone who hasn't had a relationship with another person? That doesn't mean that they're not gay. Right. You can't define it entirely on behavior. Right. Um, I mean, I'm bisexual, and there was a quite a while where I hadn't had any sexual behavior with a woman and it was never that I wasn't bisexual. Right. So it can't just be about behavior and it can't really be about desire because you have a, a, a group who doesn't desire a relationship with somebody, but still finds a asexual or aromantic. Mm -hmm. And yet they still um, identify with being queer because they still don't have a desire for 
the opposite sex either, or, you know, they still find... traditional socialized behavior of one man and one woman Mm -hmm. together forever. Yeah, and they can still find people, you know, find same-sex attractive, but not desire a romantic or sexual relationship with somebody. So, um... And then, again, we have to acknowledge that there is a spectrum of genders. So Mm -hmm. what do you mean by the same sex if they don't identify with either male or female? That's why I like the umbrella term queer has kind of been um, reappropriated from the slur to just apply to I'm not straight, but I find the labels gay or lesbian or bisexual um, kind of limiting or you know, doesn't exactly describe how I feel about my sexual orientation. Yeah. And so talking about labels, like a lot of queer theorists are very, I wouldn't say, I guess they would be like critical of the labels that we put on ourselves and others. Like in science fiction, often the people that we would call gay or call queer, they don't call themselves that or don't call, they don't have that word in their universe, um, you know, it's in this society in which, because we are not straight, we have to be this other thing. Like, it's, there has to be a definition. There has to be a definition, but it's not like it's not so much our romantic or sexual desire that makes it's us set different apart from straight. Right, exactly. It's society telling us that we're different that makes us different. That makes us have to find this label. I think there has to. Be some kind of binary. If this is what's straight and average, then we have to have this other, and it has to have a definition to set up an opposition to it. Yeah, but I—I I mean, I—I I personally I like labels because it it gives us like some sort of rallying point for like a activism. Community. Yeah, a sense of community for for activism for support. Um, I personally don't feel like a society in which no matter who you love, we're all it's the all same. It's all homogenous. It, I, I don't see that in my lifetime, and I don't really, and it's not entirely important to me. I don't care if we're different. Like, as long as you, we all have the same rights. It's like, like <laughs> I don't see color. It's like, right, it's like you can but, see color, no, it's you- just like. You just have to respect that there's differences. <laughs> right, exactly. And igno- trying to say that there is no difference isn't respecting that difference. Mm-hmm. That Yeah, that's just kind of ignoring, like, that there's a group of people who have an entirely different experience with, the, you know, from you dealing with, you know, public services, dealing with just walking down the street, like, you know. It just kind of ignores that. And I'm not ready to let that go. Like, even, you know, in the ideal future, like, even in science fiction, like, they they really, they don't We're call We're all in- one, <laughs> except for this one alien that we hate. Yeah. They um try to make everything equal by ignoring differences rather than celebrating differences. Yeah. Like I said in the beginning, it just, it's kind of like trying to ab- absolve us of all these prejudices that we deal with. Like, I don't... Like, I want to see a science fiction story that's in the, like, middle area, where it might be a little more egalitarian than today, but we're not living in this distant future where, like, we, you know... Your identity no longer matters. Yeah, it's like, can't there... We all have one identity. (laughs) Can't there be, like, a story in which, like, 
a lesbian or bisexual woman and they say those words, like, is the hero or, you know, saves the world. But it's just always, like, the fans or, like, the author labels that, that labels them, but it's never, like, in the universe. Like, the best... The- the best that people that are the, oh, what word am I looking for? The best that people that are the default can imagine is that everyone's the default mm-hmm. rather than everyone just being accepted. Mm-hmm. Just kind of like a blind spot, I think. Mm-hmm. They Like sci-fi creators, like they don't want to imagine like the hard work that it would take to get us there. They just assume like, in my world, it's always, it's already happened. We're all good now. Yeah. Which can also be a relief. I mean, sometimes you just want a bit of escapism of, mm. oh, thank God I don't have to, like, deal with the tragedies of this. Right. Like, yeah. just, sometimes it is to just imagine a world where this is fine. This is not going to hurt anyone. No one's going to be hurt because of who they are in this thing that I recognize in myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I I mean, it's nice to talk out a plane of how they got there, but I can also understand the lure of just having the joy of it and not the pain of it. Yeah. And I'm, not, and I'm saying, like, in yeah. my ideal science fiction, there would be no pain because you are queer, but you still have this kind of tie to this community because, like... My grandfather, my great-grand... You know, like, this still happened in recent memory. But not anymore. Like, we're all... We're on the way out. But, I mean, then you still have the reverberation of pain. Right. I mean, that's still a thing. That's That's true. Exactly. Well, I mean, yeah, because it's going to take a really long time for us to get past this prejudice that's just kind of written into our culture's history. Anyway, sorry, I bummed myself out. (laughs) No, you're fine. Um, Okay, now I want to talk about how queer people are represented in science fiction. Um, I watched a lot of television that has queer characters, and it's it's sci-fi TV. So, so the most LGBT representation in mainstream media is found on television. Around 5% of all TV characters are LGBT. Um, I bet it seems like it should be much higher because for the longest time, percentage was about 1% to 2%. Like, I've seen a lot of, like, people who are not fans of all the LGBT people are like, now there's a gay person on every show. Shoving it down our throats. (laughs) Yep. Okay, but not as much as going to the grocery store would if you looked around yourself every now and then. (laughs) So, these characters have names and are often recurring. So, that doesn't count, like, the, you know, one episode. So And it doesn't count, like, in guest stars, um, like, patients in medical shows or cases in crime procedurals, I think. Okay. Uh, this information is from um, GLAAD. So, 5% of all regular TV characters are LGBT. So, quantitatively, this has stayed pretty stagnant for the last five years or so. Um, some years have slightly more characters than others, and on the face of it, um, it's it's kind of accurate to, to real life, right? Or is it about, like, 10% is the figure? I think 9% is what I last heard. Okay. But supposed to be higher. 
I don't know. It won't be an option on the next census. Right. So who can say? Yeah. Well, I read that like 5% of people identify as LGBT, but what they found is like that around 10% are actually LGBT. It's just they've kind of extrapolated behavior, it. But when it's simply by self-identification, it's or what people are going to self-report to yeah. a census taker or a pollster. Like I said, it kind of varies. Like, more characters are uh, on some years or in others. Um, but it's not, like, the numbers vary, not because of the shows are canceled or new shows premiere. It's often because LGBT characters are killed or written off the show, which we kind of mentioned in the beginning. We said the just said barrier gaze, which is a trope that basically they identify a queer character, they're not around for very long, and then they're killed off, mostly just for a cheap plot. Um, So while LGBT characters represent just 5% of TV characters overall, they represent 10% of all character deaths, which is fun. Yeah. Um, So they're twice as likely to die than their straight counterparts. And then what are they like when they're alive? Um, Are they three-dimensional complex individuals with storylines of their own? Sometimes. (laughs) Uh, Trust me, I know. Uh, (laughs) I've been watching queer characters on television regularly for the past 10 years or more. Um, A lot of them are in science fiction shows. Like I said earlier, the genre invites questions about the way things are and asks how things could be. Unfortunately, these same characters are often the victims of violence. Um, We hear a lot of answers as to why that is. Um, One, because they are often side characters who are more likely to die than main characters. And two, well, science fiction isn't, isn't made in a vacuum. Like you said in the beginning... The creators, you know, are often from one point of view. They are vulnerable to the same prejudices and biases that we all are. And while LGBT characters are often accepted in their science fiction universes, they are not in on equal footing with the traditional straight heroes. Um, so how else can you explain 5% TV characters dying at twice the rate? I would like to say that Lexa deserved better. Yeah. I know. Okay, so let's hash this out. So one of the one of the reasons that like Lexa sorry, gotta gotta get it together. So there was a TV there is a TV show, I believe it is still on. Um on the CW called The One Hundred. It's a post apocalyptic teen drama and one of the characters, well, the main character comes out as bi, um, or it is, she doesn't come out again. It's one of those things where there are no bisexuals, um, because everyone casual bisexuality, yeah, exactly. I mean, there are no bisexual labels. This character just does have relationships with men and women, and um, and she falls in love with. The character Lexa, who was the leader of an opposing army, and they were trying to come to some um, alliance, and they fell in love. And it was probably one of the best 
like love stories I've seen on TV, like two like capable young women who were leaders of their people who maybe made some like tough decisions, but they did it in their like for their people's best interests. The drama wasn't contrived. It was a really great bullet for a relationship. Yeah. And then as soon as they get together, the next scene, Lexa is shot and killed. Like she catches a stray bullet and in her abdomen, after we've seen people like get a spear to the chest and just walk it off. I would just walk it off or like are caught in an explosion and are fine. But like a seasonable end for this relationship, as soon as it's consummated, death. And it was just so horrible and it really like it broke my heart. I've I still haven't recovered. It was kind of this straw that broke the camel's back as far as like queer women on TV. Like, so many of them have died. Like, they take up most of the 10% As a number. plot device. As a plot, yeah. It's not so much like, you know, this makes sense in part of the show. Like, this was, we want people to cry. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kill the gay character again. Even though, like, I believe this season that Lexa died, like, three more queer women died. Like, within the like four weeks after and there aren't that many of us i quit watching before that not gonna lie so i had to i'm glad jess brought up lexa because it really did start me researching um lgbt representation in the media okay well we talked a lot more than I thought we were going to. Um, so I'm going to kind of skip my segment about sci-fi news. I'll post it on the blog. So thanks for listening. Thanks to Jess who helped me talk about this really personal and heavy issue that I'm passionate multifaceted. about. Uh, yeah, it's very multifaceted. So subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, like Pocket Casts, for example. Uh, find me at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact and Sci-Fi. Check out the transcript of the episode. Actually, it probably won't be a transcript so much as a kind of loose. It'll be an outline. <laughs> yeah, it's an outline. Um, and other content at factandsci-fi.blogspot.com. Uh, material from Decoding Gender and Science Fiction, Brian Atterbury, glad.org, and autostraddle.com. Theme music by 126ers. And lastly, thanks for listening. Thanks.